Welcome to Agnes, the late antique, medieval, and Byzantine podcast. I'm Glenn McDorman, and today I'm talking to Dr. Robin Whalen about Christianity in Vandal Africa during the 5th and 6th centuries. Dr. Whalen earned his PhD at Cambridge University and is now lecturer in Mediterranean history and the Department of History at the University of Liverpool in the UK. His book, Being Christian in Vandal Africa, was published in 2017. Well, Dr. Whalen, welcome to the show. Oh, thanks very much for having me. So I thought we might start by exploring the terms in your title, and maybe if you could start by telling us just a little bit about late antique Africa. When we're talking about Africa in a late antique context, uh, we're not talking about Africa in the sense of the modern continent, but rather the kind of the Roman diocese of Africa, the kind of Roman administrative unit kind of modern North Africa, except for Egypt. It's this kind of strip of, of habitable land um, on the Mediterranean coast of North Africa. When you're thinking about, I guess, North Africa in a, in a modern context, we often think of this as kind of a, a frontier area between Europe, there's the Mediterranean. Think of, think of all those boatloads of kind of refugees and migrants making that difficult journey across the Mediterranean to Italy. But in this period, the Mediterranean was a, a kind of the core of the Roman Empire. And, and, and this province of North Africa was was really at the heart of the Roman Empire, a really rich land, very productive in terms of agriculture, really, really important for the Roman Empire, fed uh, the city of Rome. And so where do the Vandals come into this picture? You shouldn't be thinking about people you know, um, graffitiing things or, or smashing up city architecture or anything <laughs> like that. We're talking about, yeah, when we're talking about kind of Vandals in late antiquity, we're talking about one of the barbarian groups that entered the Roman Empire in the 5th century, settled in different areas of the Roman West, Roman kind of Western Mediterranean, and, and formed their own kingdoms on Roman territory. I'm using kind of very deliberately neutral terms here. We could use all kinds of words like migration or invasion or you know, decline and fall, but I think that would be for a different podcast. But essentially, yeah, they're, they're this warband from somewhere in kind of northern Europe. We think maybe kind of the Crimea, but this is, this is really unclear. They crossed the Rhine in probably in 406 and spend the next three decades or so working their way through France, Spain uh, and then North Africa, alternately plundering, making war on Roman armies, doing various deals with Roman authorities uh, until eventually in 439, they capture Carthage, Monday Tunis, uh, which is the, the capital of, of Roman Africa. And from then on, they rule the kind of core provinces of Roman Africa, modern-day Tunisia and Algeria, for almost a century uh, until the Eastern Roman Empire under Justinian reconquers uh, uh, this province in, in 533. Vandal Africa, I think it's often been seen as kind of the failed state of the post-Roman West for reasons that we'll, I guess we'll be getting into a bit, a bit later and, and it took quite a while, I think, for um, modern views of Vandal Africa to get over the kind of stereotype of the Vandal, the kind of cultural destroyer, partly because modern scholarship on this period, um, when historians started being much more critical about the early Middle Ages, they were often seeking to deconstruct narratives of the origins of nations. So they gravitated towards the Franks in Gaul, thinking about the start of France, the Anglo-Saxons in Britain, the start of England. Um, and because there's no you know, modern state called Vandalia, there's no 
Um, there's no kind of modern nation state which draws its, sees its kind of a heroic past as being this kingdom. Um, they kind of got a bit left out, I think, of the of the first kind of waves of critical sort of late 20th century scholarship. And it's only been kind of recently there's been some really wonderful work by various historians rethinking Vandal Africa and showing how, I mean, if you if you were going to be dropped into the kind of the fifth century somewhere in the West, you probably want to be dropped into Vandal Africa. It's the place with, I guess, the greatest continuities from the later Roman Empire, uh, a thriving economy, um, lots of political um, and cultural continuity. Um, we have this wonderful uh, classical poetry written in Carthage around the year 500. So, so it's gone from being the kind of the failed state to, I guess, the place with the, the greatest continuities from, from the Roman Empire in, in the Western Mediterranean in this period that you know, we think of as kind of the, the time of the decline and fall of the Roman Empire. So what is the relationship then between these vandals and the the way that we use the term vandal now colloquially to mean uh, graffiti writing and uh, sort of uh, public uh, public space destroying? So the term vandal in in a modern colloquial sense comes from the French Revolution um, when uh, the Abbe Grégoire, a really prominent figure in, in the French Revolution, who was very learned about this period in early Christianity, used the word vandal to describe uh, the Jacobin in the French Revolution, uh, and and he did that. When he did that, he was drawing on the kind of depictions of various different sources from the period, both kind of Roman sources that were not happy about the fact that the Vandals had just taken basically the richest province of the Roman West, uh, and and various Christian authors who weren't happy that this group uh, had gone in and and done um, in their eyes various things to sort of churches in, in the Western Mediterranean uh, and various churchmen. And, and so there was already this kind of the possibility of this image in, in late antiquity. But he, he, he saw this as a kind of appropriate term for um, the people who were basically doing various kind of anti-clerical acts and, and revolutionary acts in France. And, and from then on, it's kind of stuck as a label. Interestingly, it seems like before the Abbe Grégoire, it was actually the Goths, Another, another group from the period who were the ones who people saw of as, as being what we think of as vandals. Um, so not kind of Robert Smith, uh, the cure, white, <laughs> white um, face makeup, uh, big black glossy fringe, kind of that image of a goth. But rather uh, someone like Gibbon um, would use goth to mean what we think of as vandal. Um, so it's, I guess it's coming out of that, those kind of very learned 18th century figures who, who are showing how erudite they are by uh, using images from, from, from this past. So now for the massive question here, Dr. Whalen, can you tell us about Christianity in the Western Mediterranean here at the end of antiquity? Yeah, it's not a small question. I mean, essentially, when when the Vandals conquer Carthage in 439, at this point, Christianity um, in the Western Mediterranean is just, I guess, just starting to become the mainstream religion um, of, the, of the Western Mediterranean. Um, we're talking, it's been over a century since the Roman Emperor Constantine um, converted to Christianity. And as a result, Christians became not just the members of a kind of a legal religion in the Roman Empire, as they hadn't really been in the three centuries before that. But, but even kind of a privileged religion, they, they got various forms of pr- privileges in, in Roman law and, and pa- imperial patronage and other religious groups 
sort of the traditional religions of, of the Roman Empire, what we often call kind of paganism, was progressively kind of banned uh, and civil disabilities were kind of put in place for other religious groups. Um, so by the time we get to the 430s, pretty much every major city in the Mediterranean has a bishop and a church, even some very, very small um, settlements in the Mediterranean have um, have bishops and churches. Christianity hasn't really made it into the countryside particularly yet. That's probably another 100, 150 years down the road in, in most areas of the, the Mediterranean, um, although not North Africa. Early Christian historian Paula Fredrickson calls North Africa the Bible Belt of late antiquity. And I think that's really fair. We have even in uh, sort of on, a, on rural estates, we often have bishops and churches. So it's really kind of penetrated deeply there. But yeah, that, that's kind of the institutional framework. Okay, so Christianity is starting to really matter to a lot of people at this point, but do they all believe the same thing? And, and is there really just one Christianity at this time, or are there different schools of Christian thought? Yeah, that's a really good question. I, there really isn't one Christianity in, in the Mediterranean world in this period. I guess in some ways the best way of understanding this is that Christianity had grown up as kind of a minority religion in, in lots of little uh, communities scattered all over the Middle East and the Mediterranean. And so you know, each of these communities have developed their own sorts of ways of, uh, of, of thinking about what it was to be Christian, what the correct practices were, what they should be believing and, and you know, what, what it meant to be Christian. And while they were all kind of this minority religion, they were all scattered all over the place, they could kind of, to some degree, get away with thinking all these these different things. Um, they could all think of themselves as part of the same church because they didn't really necessarily, other than you know, through letters, they didn't really actually talk to each other very much. They could all think of themselves as part of the same church without without this playing a major problem. But then once you get Constantine, once you get... Um, the church growing into a kind of an imperial religion uh, and one where you have councils, you have all these bishops coming together um, and realizing what everyone else kind of thinks, then you start getting really kind of controversial debates over lots of issues that hadn't been sorted out before and even, even quite fundamental ones like, you know, how, how you should understand the relationship between the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. And how you, you should understand who or what Jesus Christ actually is in the Bible. Um, and that's the sort of stuff that hadn't before the kind of the fourth century hadn't really been kind of figured out within the kind of the Mediterranean church. So you mentioned that there are some big debates about the, the Trinity, about the nature of the Trinity. And that strikes me as being very important. So can you give us some more detail about what exactly these debates are and what the controversies are? One that's very important for understanding the kinds of debates we have in Vandal Africa is this prehistory of of Christian debate in late antiquity over, over especially over kind of the Trinity and over Christ's status w- within it. Basically, there were this this kind of massive set of, of controversies across the fourth century in the Mediterranean, which we usually call the Arian controversy. Although there are some problems with with that as a as, as a term. Um, which all kind of kicked off when this unlucky priest in Alexandria by the name of Arius basically argued that Christ was not quite God in the same way as his father is. 
And that was considered by his bishop to be heretical because you know, this is threatening the ability for Christ to provide salvation. If he's not truly God, then, then this is a problem. Uh, and basically the other bishops of the Eastern Mediterranean agreed. Uh, and at the Council of Nicaea, they um, excommunicated Arius as a heretic and, and put together a creed, the, the Nicene Creed, um, saying that um, father and son are, and then his wife to do a kind of a technical term, um, were homoousios, uh, of the same substance, which basically kind of meant they were equal, effectively. Um, and this is this has been the creed of the, the major church, world churches to this day, uh, effectively. But at the time, that wasn't really the end of the story. A lot of people worried about that creed because they thought maybe it had gone too far the other way, because equally, Christ has to be truly human to provide salvation, because you know, God had to become human to then save human beings. Um, and so there's then all these kind of debates for the next you know, 50, 60 years about, well, how exactly do we conceive of this? We've not worked this out before. We've got to work out some kind of terminology that everyone in all these churches across the Mediterranean is going to be happy with uh, to, to kind of define this. And they went for various kinds of options, which were in some ways a bit more like what Arius had said. There was some degree of hierarchy between father and son. And what, one of the options that they went for for a while, um, which is gonna, which was important then, uh, is, is taken up by some people in Vandal Africa as well, is that the son was like the father. And this was kind of deliberately quite vague. Um, it's kind of your classic compromise formula. You, you've, everyone's been in a meeting where you end up with a compromise that doesn't really say very much, but everyone can get on board with. And, and this is the kind of fourth century UN equivalent of, you know, uh, if Christ is like the Father, then maybe we can all be happy with this. But by by the end of this kind of these 50 years or so debates, um, most of the bishops of the Mediterranean go, go back and go, actually we think probably Nicaea was the best option. And, and at a council in Constantinople in 381, they say, actually, no, let's say Nicene Creed. And, and actually, everybody who in the past 50 years has been saying maybe there's some kind of hierarchy between father and son, son somewhat lesser in terms of his divinity than the father. They're all basically like Arius. They're all Arians. They're all heretics, just like him. And, and you get this label of, Arian, which had been bandied about um, as well in that, in, in, during the controversy, kind of sticks to these people uh, as being a term for you're not orthodox, you've, you've, you're not Catholic, you believe the wrong thing uh, about God, and and for for kind of people in the 380s to think, okay, we've sorted this out now. This is this is the end of the story, and and in some senses, in, in the light of history, it is as I said before, nice, the Nicene Creed still is the standards of orthodoxy in basically all the kind of major world churches. How have scholars often understood the relationship then of Nicene Christianity and Aryan Christianity here in Vandal Africa? One of the ways that it's been understood is really as being tied to the Vandals, effectively, as a, as a group coming into North Africa. And, and you can understand that because it's because the Vandals under, under the King Geyseric come to, to Carthage, to come to North Africa. And because certainly Geyseric adheres to a, a form of Christianity, which is kind of labelled as, as Aryan. I, I often generally use the term homoian, which is kind of a, a, a Greek term 
for it's the Greek word like is homoios. And I think it's useful to distance the the kind of describing these people in a kind of more neutral way than the the, the pejorative term. But because Geyseric adheres to a, a homoian form of Christianity, many of the Vandals uh, as a war band seem to adhere to this form of Christianity, that essentially this becomes a force in the church in North Africa and uh, North African Christianity and, and in society. For most of this century, um, the Vandal rulers seek to enforce Homoian Christianity as orthodoxy within the kingdom um, and are very happy to use various forms of coercive power to do so. So traditionally, this was seen as a kind of persecution of of the proper kind of Nicene, in both commas, Catholic Christians of North Africa, partly because our main sources for um, the history of the kingdom are Nicene priests, most famously a, a, a Nicene priest called Victor of Vita, who writes um, the, basically the main history we have for the first 50 years of Vandal rule, the, which is called the history of the persecution of the African province. Um, so that was, um, I guess, the traditional view is this is this is about persecution of, of true Christianity, which kind of led to that sense of Vandal Africa as a failed state, because if you're persecuting Catholic Christians and most of the population that you're ruling are Catholic Christians, this is not going to lead to a, uh, a harmonious relationship between rulers and ruled. Equally, um, there's, there was often a kind of a sense, uh, there has often been a sense that these distinctions between different forms of Christianity are really about ethnic identities. They're really about a kind of proxy for the dis- differences between Vandals and Romano-Africans, partly because, as I was saying before, one of the main sources of interest, one of the main reasons people have studied the early Middle Ages is to think about the origins of nations, to deconstruct them. And so they've been very interested in ethnic identities and in some ways perhaps slightly less interested in religious identities. Uh, And so often these sources that are about these Christian distinctions have been read for what does this tell us about what vandals are like what does this tell us about how vandals and romans interacted so so it's often been seen as kind of being a homoian is about being a vandal um, and being catholic was seen as something that was about being roman and if you you know so you couldn't really switch between them um, otherwise you'd be calling into question another kind of fundamental part of your identity, the kind of ethnic group to which you belonged. And um, so I think those are kind of the, I guess, the main approaches that people people have taken to this kind of question. But you see the situation quite differently. And so here's where I'm going to ask you another massive question. What is the central claim of your book? What I really have tried to do with the book is to build off some of that really excellent recent work about Vandal Africa, where um, various historians have moved on from the view of Vandal Africa as a place of persecution and as this failed state, and have essentially said, well, actually, if we deconstruct this picture, we see a kind of a vibrant polity, a place where actually people do see political continuities. Um, The kind of Romano-African elite are buying into vandal rule um, in, in all sorts of ways. And, and sort of take that picture and say, which, which in, in many ways has been built off saying, actually, 
we've exaggerated the importance of, of these Christian differences. They really matter to someone like Victor Vita because he's a Nicene priest. Of course, it's going to matter to him what form of doctrine the Vandal kings adhere to. But maybe it doesn't matter quite so much to other people who seem to be getting along okay. And saying, well, if we take that, well, what happens if we go back and look at this kind of conflict between these two forms of Christianity within that? And, and my kind of central contention is that actually these these conflicts do matter. This is this is where we're operating in the Bible Belt of late antiquity. People do care about um, the correct form of Christianity, making sure they're in the right church. But this doesn't have to mean that Vandal Africa is some kind of failed state, because actually there's lots of contexts in late antiquity and in the late Roman Empire where you have really controversial debates between either within Christianity or between different Christianity and other religious groups. And yet, you know, that doesn't mean that uh, society splinters or, or breaks down. I guess on top of that, what I tried to do in the book is, is bring out how actually this isn't about kind of ethnic identity. This isn't in the first place, although that does play a role. And, and it's not necessarily even about kind of the legitimacy of the Vandal regime. When it comes down to it, this is a, a genuine debate about what the right form of Christianity is, that just because in the sort of 380s people decided within the church, okay, the Nicene Creed is the correct form of Christianity. That doesn't mean that that question was settled for all time. And actually, this is hard to reconstruct in some ways because we just have, to a large degree, Nicene sources. We don't have Homoian, you know, in inverted commas, Aryan text, except for a handful of exceptions. But, you know, both sides are making claims to be Catholic, that they have the true faith, that their opponents are heretics. And if you look at the few kind of Homoian texts we have, and even how the Nicenes portray their opponents when they're attacking them, it's very clear that the kind of Homoian church is making a pretty decent claim to represent the true form of Christianity in Vandal Africa. We're getting a kind of a genuine debate uh, between between these two churches along with the fact they do have the Vandal regime backing this up with with legislation in their favour, with various forms of civil disabilities for Nicene Christians. So in, in many ways, it, it, this kind of isn't just a proxy for a bunch of other things. It is actually a kind of a, a debate over, over true Christianity of the sort that we see time and again in various contexts in, in the kind of the late ancient Mediterranean. Well, I want to ask you some questions about the implications then of your argument, of the way that you are, are seeing Vandal Africa. So how did these Christian debates then affect politics and society in the Vandal Kingdom? They have a number of impacts on how this new kingdom sort of develops as a, as a both in terms of this, this kind of mixed society between Vandals and, and Romano-Africans, and also in terms of how the Vandals govern Africa in a way which is kind of, it, it's interesting, you can do various sorts of comparisons across the Western Mediterranean in this period. There's lots of these new political entities forming as these barbarian groups set, set things up. Um, and I think it does, to a significant degree, set um, the Vandal kingdom off on its own 
uh, trend of, of, of development. In terms of, of politics, I mean, the Vandal Kings basically want as much as possible for the people who serve them to be Hamoyans too. This is, this is a, a kind of classic aspect of governance of the later Roman Empire, that people are keen for their political servants to be orthodox. And so, they're, yeah, they're, they're keen on that. They also um, they support um, the, the Homoian church as, as the kind of the, uh, the Catholic church, effectively, in, in North Africa. So they take a bunch of churches from the Nicenes, hand them over to Homoian clerics, um, and provide various forms of financial support, while also quite often sending Nicene bishops into exile away from their sees. And I guess those are the kind of the, the main practical financial or political impacts. I, I guess I'm wary of giving you just that side of the picture, though, because, again, this is all sounding a bit like persecution, isn't it? There's also a degree to which there are kind of moments and episodes where vandal rulers do these sorts of things. And they're the moments that are most loudly and often talked about in our sources but there's also a lot of time when effectively there's a kind of a, a detente going on a lot of time we find out about the moments when vandal rulers say actually we just want homoians at our court uh, it's usually because a bunch of nicene christians who have very happily been serving them sometimes for a number of years, decide, actually, I can't hack it anymore if this if this is going to be put in place. And, and equally, a Nicene bishop sent into exile after many years of being fine in their see, serving their congregations. So there's a, there are periods when these differences and their the enforcement of this form of, of Christianity are, are brought to bear and others where maybe they kind of move more into the background. Well, then why were the Vandal rulers sometimes so interested in enforcing Christian orthodoxy in their kingdom? That is a really interesting question, because, again, going back to what I said before about comparison, the the Vandal rulers aren't the only barbarian kings in the kind of 5th and 6th century who are Hamoian Christians. You have kings of the Ostrogoths in Italy, the Visigoths in Spain, the Burgundians in southern Gaul, who all also adhere to this form of Christianity and don't seem to be so keen, or at least they don't seem so often to have tried to enforce this form of Christianity. And it's difficult really to pin down exactly why it is that the the Vandal rulers are particularly keen. Different suggestions have been made, whether it be North Africa is a place where people just argue about Christianity a lot more than, than other places, or, or there's a particular charge to this, this kind of, these kinds of issues there, whether it's there's something particular about how the Vandals were converted, or, or just that they're trying to kind of, as, as a, a kingdom that was conquered rather than being one where uh, it was a barbarian group that was settled, they feel more able to, to do this than other rulers. And I mean, all of these are potentially good answers but we don't just don't really know what is clear is that this is really a central aspect of um, late ancient rulership certainly since kind of constantine since the the emperor theodosius the first in the late fourth century uh, making sure that your um, kingdom or your empire everyone adheres to the correct form of christianity is seen as a as a really important attribute of a ruler 
And if the Vandals had been Nicene Christians, I'm sure that contemporary writers would have been saying Geyseric or his son Hunneric were a new Constantine, a new Theodosius for what they were doing. It's just that they were enforcing what to them seemed like the wrong form of Christianity. So instead they were, you know, um, an antichrist or a, a new Herod. So in, in that sense, I think in some ways, what we really should be asking is less, why were the Vandal rulers so keen on enforcing this form of Christianity? And more, how does all those other kings get away with not doing it? when it was seen as such a, an important thing to ensure the religious uniformity of, of your polity in this period. So what are Christian thinkers, Christian bishops, and, and even Vandal rulers actually arguing about here in these debates between these, these two uh, Christian beliefs? The, the central problem is that, that problem about the Trinity and about Christ. Effectively, the Hermoyan bishops and the Vandal kings who support them think that there's kind of a hierarchy in the Trinity between kind of Father, Son, Holy Spirit. I'm doing a kind of a gesture in uh, which will not convey very well over the podcast to your listeners, where, where the Son is, is like the Father, um, which suggests a certain degree of distance between them, whereas the Nicenes think that they're all, as I said, that kind of phrase before, they're all of the same substance, they're all kind of equal. And on top of that, um, there's also a kind of a, a, a problem going on here where the Hamoyans don't think that um, if you get baptized by a Nicene bishop, that this counts. They think that that is a kind of invalid and that if you're going to join a Hamoyan community, you need to be baptized again, which for them is the first baptism. But for Nicene bishops, this is uh, another heretical thing because you, you're not supposed to get baptized twice. It says in the Bible, one church, one faith, one baptism, not not two. Um, so there's big kind of arguments about about that. I think what you get a lot of, certainly um, looking at, at contemporary Nicene texts um, and, and looking at the traces we have of the Hamoyan side, there's a lot of kind of retreading the same kind of debates that happened in the fourth century. There's a lot of fighting of old battles going on from those that big Aryan controversy in the fourth century. The Hamoyan side are saying Nicaea is, is not an ecumenical council. Actually, the council we should be looking at is one that took place um, in two places in 359, in, in Rimini in Italy and, and Seleucia in Asia Minor, where a Hamoyan formula was agreed by um, several hundred bishops. And each time you read this, more bishops seem to have turned up these councils uh, as they try to, to make it seem even more universal than it, than it was before. And, and various kind of figures from the fourth century, um, we can see just trace of being held, held up as, kind of, um, uh, as, as fathers, as kind of orthodox figures. Whereas on the, on the Nicene side, they're saying, actually, no, you guys are all Aryans. That council was, uh, was a sham. And, and there's lots of attempts to kind of draw on the, the luster of Nicene church fathers from the 4th and early 5th centuries to say, you know, um, just as Athanasius, the great bishop of Alexandria, refuted Arius, so we're refuting you. Or just as Augustine in various debates refuted Arian opponents, we're doing the same to you. So there's a, there's a lot of kind of history involved in this. Um, there's a lot of kind of competing narratives 
about who has legitimacy within the church. Uh, and a lot of kind of previous holy figures are brought to bear as being sort of predecessors, as being um, archetypes for the people who are doing the arguing now, just in the same way as, I guess, contemporary politicians um, like to kind of dress themselves up as being the new version of, of some great figure of the past in American or British politics. So to these individuals that want to say, I'm a new Athanasius, um, and that's why you should trust me when I say that I'm the person who's the Catholic, and, and that guy over in the church down the road is, is just a heretic. To what extent then were these competing Christian beliefs a matter of identity for their adherents? I think this really varies both in terms of different people and in terms of different people at different times um, as well. One of the things that I've tried to do with the book is bring to bear on on this evidence um, a set of approaches that a number of historians of, of late antiquity and especially of kind of religion in late antiquity have brought to a number of different contexts. Um, in thinking about how modern theories of identity can be used to think about religious affiliations in, in this period. And, and it's clear there's kind of a spectrum uh, of options between people who see the particular Christian affiliation as really central to who they are as people, to people for whom this is maybe less, in, less important than other considerations. So, you know, we can, there are the particular. Um, examples that I guess we can talk about to sort of ground this. You have various Nicene courtiers in the Vandal Court in Carthage who are talked about um, as individuals who they they get pressure put on them by Vandal kings or by Hamoyan clerics. You've got to convert. There are laws that are saying you have to adhere to our form of Christianity if you want to serve, who decide actually, no, I can't do this. That my, in some ways, I guess my ritual purity as a kind of um, adhering to this form of Christianity is more important than my um, my, my position. Carthage isn't worth worth a maths, basically. Who who decide actually no, I'm I'm going to suffer whatever consequences, whether losing position, and certainly in the narration of these stories, various forms of extrajudicial torture, punishment, even your know, families coming before them and saying, actually no, um, husband, no wife, you can't do this. What about what about the children? What about our family? And say no, I'm, I've got to you know, stick to my um, my faith. But then it's also obvious from various kinds of Nicene texts, which are complaining about Nicene Christians going along to Homoian churches, are saying don't trust those churches. They're not true churches. They're the the, the caves of robbers. This is you. Know, this is this is the gateway to hell. Don't go there which are complaining about people being baptised and are saying you don't believe it when Hamoyan clerics tell you that they're orthodox, when they ask you questions about doctrine that are kind of traps, that are going to lead you into being convinced that, that they're selling the right form of Christianity. There's all these kinds of te- hints in these texts that actually a lot of people are being persuaded on the one hand that, that actually they can't, they, this is, this is the right form of Christianity, but also that maybe they don't put so much value in these sorts of distinctions between these two forms of Christianity as the priests do that, that, you know, maybe they can happily go along 
to a Hamoyan church because it's the church of a martyr that they a saint that they have a particular connection to or because you know there's no Nicene bishop in their town so you go along to the church because you're a Christian and there's even kind of indications that um, some of these people who have more of a, a kind of stake in their particular confessional identity are happy to engage in forms of sociability with people who are part of the other church, whether it be um, all these kind of um, elite Christians mixing at the court in Carthage, or uh, we, we have a letter from one Christian who's sort of a concerned Christian to a, to a bishop called Fulgentius of Rus. Um, saying, well, how do I defend the Trinity where, when I'm talking to um, the, the Homoians whose company I enjoy? So there's a sense that they are kind of, that we are getting forms of sociability between members of these different churches. Some people who maybe just think, well, you know, I can be a Christian without worrying so much about what is, what's really a very, a very important aspect of doctrine, but it's only one kind of small point of difference within a kind of a huge amount of sameness between these two churches. This is a, a key question about um, the Trinity, about Christ, about salvation. But really, when it comes to almost everything else about these two churches, things are kind of mostly the same. Um, so you can understand why, for an ordinary Christian, it might be less of a big issue than it is for uh, a kind of uh, a bishop on either side who, for whom this is really, this difference is about the difference between orthodoxy and heresy. Well, I want to talk now about the methodology that you employ, about, about, the, about the work that you actually do to, to access mm-hmm. uh, this rich world of theological debate in Vandal Africa. So perhaps you could start by telling us about the sources that you use. There's a lot of different kinds of sources that I use in the book. A lot of what I'm using are various kinds of kind of Christian literature from the period. So histories, sermons, various sorts of um, kind of doctrinal treatises, whether it be dialogues, just sort of simple kind of texts which are written to prove a certain point, question and answer texts where um, the author constructs it. So it's kind of almost like a how-to guide. A, if there's this question, well, here's the answer that, that you might give to that kind of difficult question. Uh, and various kinds of um, florilegia where people bring together lots of biblical quotations, which, which prove something, some, some Christian poetry, and also some kinds of material sources as well. We have um, some very interesting uh, burial sites from, from this period where we have uh, the kind of an inscription in, in a church which marks the grave of um, of an elite figure from 5th or 6th century North Africa, which has kind of been recorded within the precincts of a church. Um, and we can sometimes draw things from, from sites like that where when we can identify it as being um, actually from this period. And a lot of the time with these inscriptions, we just get a name and an age. Um, and it's, you know, it could be any time from about 300 to 700. So it's, it's hard to say. So there's, there's various different kinds of, of sources, I guess, that, that I was using in the book. How do these sources then differ from those that previous scholars have emphasized? I think the, the sources that I use that are a bit different from some previous scholars are particularly various kinds of 
anonymous or kind of pseudonymous, like texts that have uh, been attributed to other figures um, at some point in their history, um, but were written by kind of uh, an anonymous individual in this period. Um, I think obviously we as historians are sometimes loath to use these kinds of texts because it's often hard to place them in a concrete context. If you have a text that was written by a named author like someone like Augustine of Hippo, you know, the great African figure of, of, of uh, late ancient Christianity, you know, you really know quite well Augustine's context. You often can sort of place them within his career uh, as to when they were written. Um, and when you have a text that's detached in this way, it can be tricky to to, um, to do that kind of social history at the same time. And a lot of the texts that I, I've, I've looked at have been kind of attributed to other people, but actually contain these really kind of fascinating um, approaches to to these problems of Christian difference. One set of texts that I've used that I mean I just found absolutely wonderful, enjoyed um, working on them so much, are these kind of dialogue texts that were written in this period, but where basically a, a Nicene Christian author has invented a kind of a public debate or a, or a kind of a church council and, and written the minutes almost like kind of late antique Christian fan fiction where he's taken Athanasius and Arius and said like, well, here's how they would have debated with one another and used it to make points about actually kind of his contemporaries and contemporary debates. We have a number of these texts where they kind of seed the arguments that are going on at the moment in the past in this way. And, yeah, those texts, again, they've not really been used because we like things that actually happened. We, we're less keen sometimes to work on things that didn't really happen. But these uh, you know, dialogues between Athanasius and Arius or pseudo-Augustine and, and um, Arian opponents actually tell us a lot about the kind of imagination uh, of authors at this time and a lot about the actual debates that probably were going on, even if we can't access those real debates, we can get a bit of a sense of the kinds of arguments that people, that, that bishops in this period were having with one another by looking at how these Nicene authors construct kind of fictitious debates with, with kind of made up Aryan opponents in this way. And where do you find these sources? How have they been preserved? How have they come down to us? Predominantly, uh, so, so these North African Latin Christian texts are preserved in various kind of monastic libraries across early medieval Europe. They've, they've, at some time in between the kind of 5th and 9th centuries, they find their way um, across the Mediterranean into big um, monastic centres of early medieval Europe, of what kind of becomes Carolingian, Europe, the Carolingian Empire. And they, we don't really get, we don't really have North African archives, obviously, because... Um, you get first the Byzantine conquest and then the Arab conquest in North Africa. And so we don't necessarily have um, you know, North African archives from, from this period in the same way. But um, there's obviously these really lively kind of intellectual connections across the Mediterranean, lots of people traveling around the Mediterranean and, and people writing to each other. And so we get these North African texts either coming into Italy, a lot of them going to Spain. Um, and then they are copied out by you know, monks in the Carolingian period um, because 
what were very useful, at least when it comes to texts I'm looking at, these texts about Christian doctrine, what were very useful texts in the 5th and 6th century for, well, how do I argue with an Arian, then become really useful in, say, the 9th century for how should I understand the Trinity as a Christian. They seem to turn up in a number of manuscripts about kind of, which are handbooks for priests, about how do you explain um, the Trinity to um, candidates for baptism? How do you explain basic Christian doctrine to your congregants? So they're they're being used, um, they have a kind of afterlife uh, as ways of explaining some things that have become basic aspects of Christian doctrine to new generations um, of Christians in, in Western Europe. Well, Dr. Whalen, thank you so much for joining me today and taking the time to talk uh, about your book. Well, thanks so much for having me. It was, um, I really enjoyed it. Well, that's going to do it for this episode. I'm Glenn McDorman. You can find me and the Agnes Forum at claytemplemedia.com. And until next time, awe atque wale.